every program gets compiled down to ones and zeros before it can be executed against hardware. Before being translated to that machine code, programs that are written in a language like Rust or Swift or Java, they spend time in an intermediate representation. In Java, this intermediate representation is Java bytecode. Many different languages, such as Scala, translate to Java bytecode because there's been lots of optimization written to speed up that Java bytecode. Java bytecode runs on the JVM, the Java Virtual Machine. LLVM is a project that draws inspiration from the Java Virtual Machine. LLVM originally meant low-level virtual machine, but today it is just called LLVM and describes a set of compiler tools. In today's interview with Morgan Wild, we explore how compilers work, how different processor hardware architectures present a problem for those compilers, and why LLVM's intermediate representation creates a layer of interoperability for any language that compiles down to that intermediate representation. Whether you are new to compilers or you have some experience, this episode will appeal to you. Morgan is an excellent teacher and his enthusiasm for the subject comes through. He has a 30-minute YouTube video, a brief introduction to LLVM that's in the show notes. I highly recommend it if you're curious about this topic. It's it's one of those really succinct explanations that nonetheless has a ton of depth. So thanks to Morgan, and I hope you enjoy this episode. For Software Engineering Radio, this is Jeff Meyerson. Morgan Wild is an iOS developer at Shoplandia. He is the creator of a YouTube video called A Brief Introduction to LLVM, which I found to be a very helpful resource. Morgan, welcome to Software Engineering Radio. Hey there, Jeff. Nice to be here. So today we're going to talk about the LLVM, and I want to have a general introductory discussion of some compiler stuff first, before we get into what LLVM is, because it's related to compilers. For people who are needing a refresher, what are the high-level steps that a piece of code goes through when it gets compiled down to binary ones and zeros? Right. So, I mean, in a general sense, any kind of programming language has to end up looking like machine code that a CPU can can execute. And obviously, there's a whole bunch of CPUs and there's a whole bunch of programming languages. And... There has to be something in the middle there to translate, so to speak, or compile the source into what a CPU would understand. And a big step up from what we had before compilers, which was assembly language, which essentially was human-readable binary code. We would just issue instructions, and they were non-portable instructions. So if you, say, worked on Intel, you can do ARM or, you know, vice versa. And the compiler sort of created this abstraction layer over the machine language or CPU instructions by allowing us to program in sort of more abstract programming languages where we worry about the logic, sort of the the things that we want to see happen, rather than thinking about what to instruct the computer to do to get to that point. And so any, any kind of source that you write in, in a language that is compiled, because there's languages like Python and PHP and Ruby, that they're not compiled. They're interpreted. Lives. Right. So 
any any kind of compiled language does have a necessity of having a compiler to translate that into to machine language. So the first right. step is you, you take the source file and you basically just put everything into tokens. You just assign, do like a syntax check whether the tokens check out and whether it's a legitimate piece of that language. And you compile trees into trees from that and you get essentially a abstract non-readable format of your code that just you know scrapes off of scrapes all of your so your comments your variable names and all that stuff and then depending on your architecture from that abstract form sort of cleaned cleaned up form there can either be a direct translation into one architecture or another the term here is target so any kind of CPU architecture you're looking for is is essentially a target. And so if you're targeting an iPhone, you have to worry about instructions that are different if you're when you would be targeting a MacBook, for example. And so if you're directly compiling, like GCC, which is the GNU compiler collection, takes your C, for example, and, and just spits out machine code. Structures like LLVM create an intermediate representation of that code. It can optimize that code and do all, all kinds of smart stuff that allows it to, you know, speed up your existing code. If you compile it, say three years ago, you would compile it now and, and sort of you get the speed up and, and that finally gets translated into machine readable code. Absolutely. So let's talk about the pre-LLVM world before we get into LLVM. You touched on this idea of the N by N language to processor problem where if, you know, in a world without LLVM, you potentially can have this scenario where for each language and for each processor, you need an individual way of getting that language into a form that that processor can understand. Is that accurate? Yeah, it is a, a very a very big problem from, I guess, a few decades back that prevented or and, and stagnated the industry in that portability was pretty much non-existent before Unix came along and sort of created the, the POSIX standard. And, and sort of before that, before POSIX, you had people building all these architectures and they didn't share a whole lot in common. And if, if you, if you as, a, as a programmer required, you know, a simple task as, as reading from disk, you would have to abstract that part away yourself and take care of any number of architectures because, you know, Unix does file reads one way, there's one command, Windows does it differently, and some architecture acts would do it would do it differently mm -hmm. so th these things sort of stagnated the industry to, to a point where java when it came out was this massive savior for the whole market in that programmers started sort of dreaming about the build one once and run everywhere mantra which is pretty powerful when you're stuck in the world where you're limited in, in that regard mm-hmm now, we're going to get into LLVM in a sec, but you mentioned Java, and you mentioned a degree of portability that Java added. Can you explain 
what that portability was and what were some of the results of people being inspired by the JVM model? Right. Well, Java is sort of this poster child of, of that build one, run, run anywhere movement that sort of later was transformed into the, the web architecture or at least inspired the web architecture where pretty much you have this experience where you develop a website over a, a web service and you have the expectation of being able to run those apps anywhere. So that came from, from Java and JavaScript was sort of directly influenced by Java. And so what, what Java does is it takes your source and LVM and Java has this, this part in, in common where LVM has the, the IR or the intermediate representation and Java has the bytecode. But from that point on, they act differently upon those two things because what Java does is it distributes the bytecode and you, you run it, you execute the last part of what a compiler would do, which is translate bytecode into machine executable commands runtime. So there is an inherent lag in any kind of Java program where there's like a two second thing that needs to happen for the bytecode to be loaded onto what's required for that architecture. And yeah, you know, that simple fact of being able to carry that abstract form of your code in the form of bytecode and then compile it only when you run it certainly does have its benefits. Right. So I think what you're getting at with this is that in the JVM ecosystem, you've got this bytecode, and the bytecode is this representation that's not super low level, it's not super high level, it's somewhere in between, and because we have this bytecode representation, we can move it between different architectures and we can have the same predictable runtime experience on each of those hardware architectures. And LLVM borrows from this in some ways because of this intermediate representation that we're going to get to. But let's start simply. What is the LLVM? Well, it's, I mean, back in the day when it it was first formed, it was a step towards emulating the bytecode sort of intermediate language between executable code and, and source code. And it turned into this pretty massive effort that's open source. And it's it's a whole ecosystem of compilers and their tools. And the thing that joins them together, the thing that all of them share, is the intermediate representation, or IR. And obviously, the man or one of the two men that, that created LVM is Chris Latner. He later joined Apple specifically on that achievement. It was you know, a graduate project. Most of us would dream of a, of a graduate project that's successful. And yeah, it turned into something that I've heard recently. It's able to do C faster than GCC is able to do. So they started off a lot slower than, than C, but they're sort of their whole mission is to create a optimizer for uh, their custom intermediate representation that is, is able to continually optimize the code to the point where, you know, it just gets better and better and better. Hmm. And uh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So we'll get into as much of the LLVM as we can, but this is, for listeners who don't know, this is a really big subject. And 
basically, you know, before LLVM, compilers tended to have this monolithic structure. And as you talk about in your YouTube video, which I'll have in the show notes, LLVM breaks the monolithic compiler structure into a series of steps. It breaks this structure into scanning, parsing, intermediate representation, the intermediate representation optimizer, semantic analysis, target code, and finally, compiled code. And we could get into any number of these steps in the compilation structure, but as you said, the intermediate representation is really the area that we should focus on. So what what is meant by that intermediate representation? What does an intermediate representation mean, and how do we get there? Sure. Before that, I do want to clarify that oh, you've sure. mentioned seven steps here. They're not unique to LVM. And in general, what, when you're thinking about compilers, pretty much all of them have the sequence of those six or seven steps. And so I want to stress that that's not unique. LVM did not invent, invent that, that sequence. What it did was is it decoupled the IR from essentially what, what is the front end uh, meaning parts of the compiler sequence that are concerned with specific source, source code, source files, and the back end, which essentially is concerned with optimizing specific targets and then creating those, creating executables for, for those targets. So the key unique thing that it did was it sort of separated IR from the sequence here. Pretty much every compiler has that sequence and pretty much every compiler has that sequence in a sort of modular-ish way within their own world. But none of them, yeah, I feel like none of them, at least not the big ones, they don't have the intermediate language as separate as LVM has. Hmm. Okay. Well, thanks for that clarification. Yeah, you know, because any any computer scientist that goes to the compiler class... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> You'll sort of see the the sequence, and you know it's it's there. It's not an invention that we can credit Chris Latner with. But okay, yeah. So to your question, IR is well. It depends. Every system has its own IR, and it's just a step that eases the optimization steps, hmm. which you know create the 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 executables that are speedy and performant. So what you have in in regular source code, as I mentioned in in the beginning here, is sort of high-level structures. Let's take Swift, for example, because that's my my favorite language. You have your classes, you have your structures, you have functions and methods and all kinds of high-level stuff. Now, no processor operates on that level, and obviously they, they don't understand that. So in between machine code, executable code, and and source code, you have this assembly-like intermediate representation. And when I say assembly-like, a lot of the people that deal with assembly languages can pretty much immediately feel accustomed to what's going on in specifically LVMIR. Because what you do there is, well, first of all, you don't work with variables, you work with registers. And... To that point, sort of the biggest difference from any kind of assembly language is registers are mutable. And by that, I mean, when you have your, you know, Rx register, you just, you know, 
put stuff into it or you take stuff out of it uh, mm-hmm. you read from it mm-hmm. and it's constantly changing state mm-hmm. right it's a sort of a physical register that just constantly is mutating and any number of parts within your code can can change that and being able to optimize any kind of dynamic data is is a lot harder than optimizing something that's immutable and mm-hmm. so ir for lvm has immutable registers hmm. which is essentially just an unlimited sequence of let or const declarations that that you that you do Okay, so let's take this, let's go through a simple example. So let's say we had a program that we wrote in Swift. As you said, this is one of the favorite programming languages of today, of 2017. I think there was a Stack Overflow survey recently that said this was the favorite language of programmers on Stack Overflow. This is a language that is used to develop most iOS apps these days. So let's say we wrote a Swift app that was just x equals 5, y equals 2, Two and z equals x plus y. Sum, yeah, yeah, and then like print the sum or something. So if we wanted to say, like, let's compile that and run it, maybe you can explain what happens to get to the intermediate representation point, and then what's going to happen with those registers in the intermediate representation and optimization step. So first of all, when when you're tokenizing your your source say that x equals something y equals something swift does a beautiful thing which is called which is called type inference so you don't need to write int or float or whatever but that step is required for the compiler to allocate the correct number of bytes and 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 sort of be able to deal with the underlying data and so what the first few steps do is they position everything that you've declared into sort of stack frames and a stack frame is just concerned what tokens are you able to access within that stack frame and what tokens will you be able to access from children stack frames and at that point what you, what you do is you get the token identifier which is x or y or z and then you get the type and then you get the current value for that thing and you know something as simple as as some and this is one of those points that I, I showed in the presentation is you take those types and you convert them into IR types and obviously you don't have structures or classes but you have pretty advanced types like function pointers and all kinds of numeral types and functions and, and all of that stuff which is definitely a lot higher than what you would get with a, with assembly like languages and every single declaration of a of a register has to be sort of preceded by a type so you, there's no type inference and yeah so you got your x and your y and they can be translated into anything but all those identifiers will start with a percent sign and let's say percent 1 percent percent two uh, would be your x and y and they would probably have an integer type let's say integer 64 depending on the architecture for of course or 32 like with any register you'd be able to issue the add command 
And the only difference is in, in terms of commands here, since your registers are immutable, so it's very much like a functional language, any kind of result from an operation that mutates data or potentially would mutate data is just a return value. So when you add stuff in assembly-like languages, you do like ADD and then one register and another register. You won't be able to do that here. You wouldn't have to, you know, assign that value to, to another register, to a new register. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's addition. And then the, the only difference here would be you take the plus sign, you turn that into ADD, you add the type identifier and your two sort of values and, you know, not too big of a deal when so, it comes to simple math. So it sounds like there's not much optimization going on in this example. Is that right? There's there's zero optimization. Okay. So what what kind of things will we need to add to this code in order to illustrate the optimizer? Well, let's say y would be zero. So your x is two, your y is zero, and you're mm -hmm. adding these two numbers. Ah. And you're using the sum. And you know if you're defining the value with you know just a numeral, you could optimize that out yourself. But oftentimes, one value is defined in like a, a static let somewhere in a struct that you know is far away. You don't see the value, and th these things easily happen. It's it's one of the most popular optimizations here. Hmm. And what a processor would do is you'd waste a couple of instructions at least to do that non non operation essentially, because you know adding zero to anything does not change the value. So to save those couple of instructions, a couple of cycles, IR looks for common patterns. And the sequence of patterns is, is constantly uh, updated and it can it, it's a growing, growing list. And it obviously uh, differs by the, the types that you're dealing with. So say any kind of numeral type would have, you know, plus zero equals the same value, you can optimize that out. Times one, the same value, you can optimize that out. And you know, all that all that mathy stuff you can you can optimize out. The way it works is deep in, in the in the C that's dedicated for LLVM, there is a split, a branch, depending on what kind of operation you're doing, that takes you to a for loop that iterates through all the possible optimizations for a specific, I forget what the sequence is called, but for a specific sequence of, uh, of code, which is essentially any kind of operation that add would be one example, move would be another example. And yeah. And, and so it loops through all the, all the possible options there. And it applies the the optimization for and assigns the the result to a temporary variable, and then it checks whether, first of all, whether there's no errors that are introduced by that change, and whether there's any value gained from from that operation. And then, if that's true, that gets substituted into the original code. So you're saying that when I compile my Swift code. During once it, after it gets translated into the intermediate representation, there is a tree of possibilities that are created to attempt to see is there a way to represent the same code 
in a more concise fashion than the original naive intermediate representation that we've created. Is that right? Yeah, well, well, first of all, you, you, personally, you should probably never deal with IR directly. And it, yeah, so the first step is sort of the naive translation verbatim of, of what you see in your source file into IR. Mm-hmm. And then only then can, can you do the optimization because then you're dealing with immutable registers and a structure that inherently is more accessible to, to scans like that. So yeah. if, we're, if we're looking at all these different potential configurations of our code, that sounds like something that would be really, really time intensive, especially for complex programs. Well, if you remember when Swift came out, compile times for something that was you know bigger than a few uh, view controllers, they were pretty big. And uh, you're right; it does take time to you know optimize the optimizer. <laughs> for a specific front end. But the main thing here is that any kind of performance gains from, say, someone working on optimizing C, and obviously to optimize C, you have to go through LVMIR and do some clever optimizations over there. And guess what? Those same optimizations translate to any front end that gets compiled down to uh, IR. So people that are working on these I don't know what's the number of, of, of languages that have front ends to LVMIR, but it's pretty big. Mm-hmm. And, and some of the languages are, are very well used. Those optimizations get shared. Right. Right. So, so I want to, and I want to eventually get to the modular part, but a little more on this intermediate representation optimization stuff. So I am reminded of the Deep Blue, the IBM Deep Blue stuff, because you know, this was the chess computer where, given any chess scenario, Deep Blue would look at all of the potential decision spaces that you could potentially go down and play out the entire chess game down that part of the decision tree. And it sounds like the intermediate representation optimization is like that level of complexity because if you're looking at the entire tree of possibilities for different ways that your code could be arranged that to me in a complex program that sounds like it is just too much work is is that accurate or is it just is it possible to break well, down i wouldn't say in, in a way it is just in that you, you end up looping over the entire sequence of a specific optimization but you're not looping for every existing optimization for each line of code or or mm. each operation. An operation is the atomic unit there. You're looking, first of all, what you're doing is you're putting that existing operation and, and, and the existing variables into a specific slot, a niche. Mm. And th- that alone reduces your your problem space significantly and and obviously when when you reduce your 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 problem space you're not dealing with what's the chessboard total probable moves when you start getting trillions i don't know what what that is (laughs) yeah so so you're, you're not dealing with anything of that scale because you have this inherent step of you take an operation and then you take the, the existing identifiers, the, the, the values there, and then you only go through 
the appropriate optimizations for that. Hmm. And there's obviously predictive stuff going on there, which I'm not in depth on, but from what I know, it is certainly not enumerating everything that you can possibly think of. Hmm. And this certainly sounds like a problem that could be assigned across multiple threads because if you're testing these different oh these are super parallel like yeah when 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 you're dealing with optimizations you're optimizing each individual operation you're not optimizing in in terms of multi-operational sequences so the parallel nature of of this whole thing is 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 very great yeah absolutely when you when you say operation maybe this is a naive question but what do you mean what is an operation for example, add one register to another. Okay. And can you explain some other examples of, of operation? Because I'm, I'm, I guess I'm having trouble understanding where, you know, like add one variable to another. That doesn't sound like something where there would be that many different configurations to test. Maybe you can help me under- clarify. There can be, you know, a whole bunch of them. Obviously, you have your load and store. You have your control transfer ops you have your ah. type uh, conversion ops like when you're adding obviously ah, you're illustrating add as a fairly high level operation that gets translated into a bunch of low level operations no 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 add is as low as it gets okay <laughs> yeah there, there's nothing oh, that oh uh, i see you're talking about other operations so other add, sort of equivalent yeah right. parallel yeah, operations yeah right They're, so load and store uh, Maybe explain what a load and store operation is. Loading is is reading from a register and storing is writing to a register. Okay, and that would be that's an example of something that you could see being optimized if it was tested in different. Yeah, well, say you know you're reading a value and and assigning that to another value without any kind of mutation. A an optimization would be anywhere you're using the variable that you're the identifier that that you you're assigning to you can just replace with the identifier that that you will be assigning it so if it's if it's a constant obviously there's if it's a variable that 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 can mutate the the underlying value you can't do that but if it's it's if it's a constant and you're assigning just just that basically creating an alias you can optimize that out and you know Okay, so you're talking. You're giving an example where, you know, you take a load and store operation and you test different ways of doing it. You might get memory savings. You might get time savings based on variable reuse, for example. Yeah. Well, yeah. any kind of variable that you don't have to assign is is a variable that you don't have to get space from your stack for. Is a variable that you, you don't have to deallocate the memory for. And right. It's always a plus to to having fewer. Cool. Okay, so before we hop out of the super lower-level stuff and talk about some of the flashier characteristics, so we talked about this load and store. Just to close the loop for some people who may not, like load and store, that doesn't sound like anything I use in my programs. Can you just illustrate, like, yeah, where what will be a higher-level line of code that might end up translating to a load and store operation? Assigning a variable from another variable right. would, would be an, an example of a load and store. Because okay. 
any kind of a assignment, it's a single operation in like Swift. You just, you know, do A equals B, but there's an abstracted command even in assembly called move, which essentially does two things from, you can use move from memory to memory. So like anything that's on the stack, you can move things from the stack or within the stack. And if, if you're dealing with registers, there are certain instances where you would have to sort of read from a register, put that into memory, then take that memory and, and read it into and write it into another register where you can do a flip. So you would need to load and store that, that type of thing. But this is something a programmer would never interact <laughs> with in, 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 in their daily life because thank God these things are abstracted away and all we deal with is, you know, view controllers and transitions and okay. all that beautiful yeah. stuff. Yeah, so you've given us a beautiful, I think, top to, from the top to intermediate representation explanation. And I think your earlier conversation sort of gave people a picture of what happens after the intermediate representation. It goes down to machine code, and there's some processor stuff that happens. If people want to know more about that, they can look into how compilers work or basically what happens after the intermediate representation. But I want to talk more about why this intermediate representation is a big deal because essentially if you can get any piece of code into the intermediate representation the intermediate representation can do a lot of optimizer work and we can have a open source collective working on the intermediate representation and driving gains for any of these other languages that can compile down into the intermediate representation so we're talking about Swift and Rust and anything else. So maybe you could talk about what are the challenges that a language has to overcome in order to be able to convert into this intermediate representation? Well, that's a little sort of beyond what, what I can contribute. Okay. Sort of in, it's a topic that I know a lot of people go through when, when they think about, you know, doing like a hobby project of a sort of Interesting language, and and most of them pick LVMIR as a way to compile it into into executable code when you know toy languages. Fascinating. Yeah, it's from what I heard, it's one of the easier, or probably the easiest, or maybe even the only viable option there when creating a new language. Whether so, the audience would be just just you, or 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 even if it's bigger. So maybe eight years ago, people might have said, I want to write a new language, and they write Scala, and then they say, okay, I'm gonna, I want this language to compile down to a machine, so I'm going to write it for the JVM, or I'm going to write it to compile down to bytecode. Most likely what they would do is translate that into C, and then just use GCC, the, their, their compilers, to get to machine uh, code. And, and so I think Haskell has this attribute where their their functional programming source gets translated into C, super unsafe C, and uh, that gets transferred onto machine code. Ah, so so you're saying that in the past, people might have used C as the interoperability layer, whereas today yeah. we can do LLVM. Well, and it's very important to say that GCC is like the big dog here, and I think it still is. Since it's been going for, I don't know, 50 years now, 40, who knows? It's a super massive project, and 
inherently and has a lot of optimizations, whether they're good or bad, whether they're modular or not, you can produce super quick executables with GCC. And all you need, like when you think about intermediate languages, you think low level sort of memory access, CPU instruction access, and you get a lot of that with C. Tweak it a little bit and you can, you can get to, to raw memory. A lot of these embedded systems use C as their sort of interface language. C inherently has a lot of properties that IR has. And so it was sort of a, a natural use for the, the language uh, until something came out that you know, had the sole purpose of being in the middle. Hmm. So C does still take up that a little, a little bit. But it, obviously, it's being phased out. But by tools that were made specifically for that task. Well, safety is something that I have heard. You're not the first person who I've heard mention like C is somewhat unsafe if you're if you want to build a systems level language. And Rust is something that I've heard is a language that has some safer properties than C. And perhaps some of that is due to being able to be built on top of the LLVM uh, on top of the intermediate representation is there is there some notion of safety that is built into the intermediate representation no because when when you think about safety you, you don't think about the language itself m- most often what you think about is things that be, people build with the language so, so you have a human component there to abuse safety and turn it into something that's unsafe. For example, a lot of a lot of people are, are taught C, and when they go through sort of the the initial tutorials, they see how to read and 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 write data from the terminal. And obviously, that's been outdated for God knows how many years, and it's no longer safe to to do it that way. So. When it comes to safety, either you're using a framework that someone wrote that's not a systems engineer or a compiler designer, and it's unsafe because it's using some part of the language unwisely, or you're you're responsible for your own code and, and you don't know something or you have a leak or you don't check input or something like that and you create unsafe sort of programs. But the intermediate representation does not in and of itself create safety issues because you know the the loop is pretty much closed there yeah you have that with with higher level stuff Hmm. okay so i jumped the gun on talking about rust what is rust able to leverage from the llvm well that's as far as i know in terms of uh, of rust it's using the the back end for the source is created by the the open source community, and they worry about the definitions there, and you know how to how to organize the language. But the part that is the most difficult and optimizing would that would require uh, the most resources is the back end, or you know how to make code run quickly on Intel, on other architectures uh, other than x86, and that's where you get the built-in benefits from LLVM hmm. by using their backends for, I think they have backends for pretty much every single platform that's that's big, definitely ARM and x86. And so that pretty much allows you to reach that whole market. So if, if you're developing any hobby language, and I mean, Rust is still at a point where 
in most cases, I might be ignorant to any kind of big, big existing project that uses Rust as their main language, but I haven't heard of any at this point. Dropbox. And so, really? I yeah. heard they're Python-driven mostly. I think, I think the Dropbox. I think, I think Dropbox is Rust uh, now. Anyway, I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, I th- I'm pretty sure that they're... So they moved off of the cloud recently, and when they moved off the cloud, they rewrote a lot of stuff, and I think that they used Rust. But anyway, I'm sorry. Sorry, I interrupted you. Well, there, there's probably parts. You know, any kind of startup. The, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> even even individual developers have tools that they write. I, I think I deal with five different languages on a daily basis, pretty much. Fair uh, enough. And that's just that's just because you use different tools for different purposes. And yeah, so regardless of that fact, it's still a very nascent language. And yes. Yes you either dedicate your resources and that's probably the whole point of having these beautiful projects like LLVM is that people can now work on things that they're the best at or at least try to be the best at one specific part and so with LLVM a rust people don't have to worry about being good intel architecture people or you know ARM architecture people, they just need to worry about how to deal with memory and how to deal with a good structure and, and, and sort of focus just on the front end. But, you know, that's a big picture commentary. I, I wouldn't be able to do more than that. We talked about JVM versus the intermediate representation layer a bit and Java virtual machine, LLVM stands for low level virtual machine, probably should have mentioned that earlier. It, no, it doesn't uh, doesn't stand for that anymore. Oh, that's right. It used to. Oh, yeah. Now it's just LLVM. It's like you know, BMW is BMW. You don't uh, enumerate <laughs> what 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 each letter means. Yeah. Well, Sorry. so anyway, yeah. what, where I was going with that was that there is an an analogy to be drawn because in the Java bytecode ecosystem, you have this shared layer, the JVM bytecode layer where people so like people will write you know people will have a big ruby on rails application when they get when they hit a performance bottleneck they will switch to jruby which is a version of ruby that runs on the java virtual machine basically as i understand jruby is a, is java so you can compile ruby to jruby and then jruby runs on the jvm the java bytecode so it runs faster you get to take advantage of those bytecode optimizations and similarly, we've got this intermediate representation that we've been talking about where Rust can compile down to it, Swift can compile down to it, and we have these optimizations that are shared on a platform. How do the optimizations of, the, or how does the Java, I should ask a bigger question, how does the Java bytecode ecosystem compare to the LLVM intermediate representation ecosystem today? How would somebody choose between writing their language to compile to Java bytecode versus compiling to intermediate representation? Well, to some extent, they are different animals, and you, you can't do like a, an apples and apples comparison because they take up different niches, I think. IR is substantially lower level than what you would get with bytecode, meaning even though IR is isomorphic in that you can't, Translated to bit code, which is like a super tight version of, of what those operations and commands look like to human readable IR and memory stored IR. But 
memory, uh, sorry, human readable IR is not source code that a person would be able to tell, you know, just skimming through it, what, what the program does. Whereas JVM bytecode, you can actually take it and it's isomorphic to the source level. So we, what you have is, even though you lose the original identifiers and that can take away some part of the meaning or in some instances, a lot of the meaning, but you still have a line for line representation of what the source code looked like. So that is probably the, the major difference there. And, and you can, by the way, you can check that difference by, you know, just inquiring into, I know this for a fact, you can do that on Android Studio. So any kind of an IntelliJ IDEs where you can open up libraries that are compiled into bytecode and you can look look through the actual Java code without, you know, the identifier names and, and all of that, but you can you can still look through it. Whereas IR does not have that quality. I want to begin to close off and just talk about where the LLVM ecosystem is at today. As you mentioned, LLVM was originally just called the low-level virtual machine. That's what it stood for. Now today it's called LLVM. It's literally just called that because it's representing a larger ecosystem of compiler tools. Can you explain... Specifically, uh, sorry, the biggest parts would probably be the linker, LLD Mm -hmm. and uh, LDB, which is the debugger. If you've worked on Xcode at all, you would see LDB messages pretty often. So when you when you add breakpoints and stuff, that's when you're dealing directly with another piece of the LLVM architecture. That's the debugger. So those three parts are probably the biggest. Hmm. I mean, for if you abstract away IR. Hmm. Now, is that debugger, I guess that's running. So what happens is... You compile your code. It goes through the different. It goes through the intermediate op- representation. It gets optimized, and then it runs. And then you are debugging against the intermediate representation that was settled on after the optimization. Is that right? Well, you're, you're debugging against live code, but that code is obviously annotated so that you can have access to the the code that you wrote in Swift, for example. Right, it's okay. not like a stripped down version. So any oh. kind of debugger adds a layer t- to the intermediate executable code that can, you know, transfer some some data cuz and so when that when you exhaust that, you oftentimes are taken to IR and or some form of IR and then you just see a whole sequence of registers within a specific stack frame and then God help you <laughs> finding what went wrong there. So the the LDDB debugger takes care of of that specific part. Hmm. In the Apple ecosystem, you you probably don't veer too far from the entire sequence there because you know you're linking your stuff with the LLVM linker against your your static dynamic libraries and and you're debugging with your with your debugger. So yeah, Xcode is very much reliant on LLVM. Okay, so I want to wrap up with one. I mean, I want to make one quick point, I guess, that people who are maybe new to thinking about compilers, the reason we're spending so much time talking about this optimization stuff and why this is so important is because if you can spend a lot of time automatically optimizing your code, then every end user who is executing that code gets to take advantage of the optimization. So even though the developer who is compiling, 
the code, might have to wait around while the different intermediate representations are being tried. Once it settles on an optimal one, all of the end users who are who are actually executing that code get to take advantage of the optimizations. So, but with that in mind, is that is that the main thing that the ecosystem is focused on? So when we're looking at the future of the LLVM and the things that are going to develop out of this ecosystem, what should we expect? Should we just expect more optimizations that are going to be made on the intermediate representation level or better debugging tools? Or is there something bigger that is being worked towards? I'm pretty sure what you've just mentioned would be a good characterization for it. You Essentially what LVM allows you in the future, I guess, you can probably see more new exciting different languages being created because you don't have the inherent bottleneck of worrying about sort of how that thing works on the the different systems. So that's one possible outcome. You'll have a lot of front ends sharing their optimizations between each other. That's a big boon for the industry because, you know, those resources are, are very valuable. So whenever you can share or collaborate with other people that is a great great benefit and yeah i mean it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens with the the collection of tools here when chris is no longer with apple and no longer working actively on maintaining as he was the the primary person there since he moved to tesla so it's 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 going to be interesting how how they're going to deal with with the future related stuff come WWDC this summer. Okay, Morgan. Well, is there any social media plugs that you'd like to give for people who want would want to follow you? What's the what are the best ways to follow you? I use Twitter, and you can find me wild at wild Morgan, last name first name on Twitter. Okay. And, yeah. All right. Well, Morgan, thanks for this illuminating discussion of. LLVM, I think you gave a really clear explanation. I liked that we were able to dive deep and go higher level, and I recommend anybody who's looking for further information on this to check out your YouTube video, which is only about 30 minutes long. That's why I liked it so much, is that it was concise and yet deeply informative. So thanks for producing that. Yeah, it was a a love child, I have to say. It took probably three weeks to get the thing together. 20 minutes so yeah you can have a a pretty good you know refresher on not even uh, not only lvm but the whole ecosystem for compilers all right morgan well thank you for coming on software engineering daily thanks for having me jeff it's been a pleasure wow